Blog Talk Radio. We are back. Welcome, everyone, and you are listening to This Week in Accountable Care. I am Greg Masters, your host and producer of the broadcast. I also publish the blog acowatch.com. And This Week in Accountable Care is brought to you by healthinnovationmedia.com, where we cover the pursuit of high-performing and sustainable healthcare ecosystems from idea to business model. And I'm really stoked today. We say that here in California. Uh, we're kicking off our 2014 programming with a timely roundtable discussion of early ACO results with three seasoned executives and industry thought leaders who I'm thrilled to call friends. So let me tell you who's in store for you today. We have uh, David Kreis, the CEO of Kreis Management Group, a management consulting and contracting firm leading in technology transfer and development, translational medicine, health systems management, and digital media. Fred S. Goldstein is the president of Accountable Health, LLC, chair, board of directors, and interim executive director of the soon-to-be rebranded, I hope I'm not letting that out of the cat, the bag here, Continuing, Continuum Alliance. <laughs> Fred has over 25 years of senior management experience in the healthcare industry encompassing disease management and wellness, HMO, hospital and physician group operations, strategic planning, mHealth marketing, product development, network development, and government affairs. And Jim N. Hansen, Vice President Health Policy at Numeris and Faculty, member of Lumeris' Accountable Delivery Systems Institute. Lumeris is an accountable care delivery innovation company offering health systems payers and providers operational support, technology, and consulting services. Jim is an accomplished health industry executive with more than 20 years of experience in organizational leadership, strategy, consulting, process improvement, etc. So welcome, gents, and the reason we're assembled here today is to discuss the and somewhat vet perhaps through your individual and collective lenses the performance results as published by CMS and dive perhaps a little further into the underlying narrative and let me read uh, the headline from the release by CMS it is quote Medicare's delivery system reform initiatives achieve significant savings and quality improvements off to a good start, quote, savings from both the Medicare ACOs and Pioneer ACOs exceed $380 million. So first up, is this a good start, and how would we know? Jim, you published a recent article on, uh, uh, on sophomore to freshman Medicare shared savings programs. Ready, fire, aim is not a good ACO data strategy. Why don't you kick it off? Um, sure. Thank you very much, Greg. Uh, you know, I I'd go. I want to go to the top the top line there that you went through. Um, I think any savings is good, and um, 
I think, um, it, you know, it's, it's too early to tell. Um, these programs were put together in a block of three years, and if, if the entities that are participating um, understand and internalize the fact that this really is a, a journey and not a program, even though it, CMS calls it a program, it's really a journey to the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care, that the, uh, the, the people process, the technology components are significant enough where you know, you're, you're not going to make significant strides in the first year. Um, I think what we same with these, same as we saw with the pioneers, is that um, you know, the, the people that, that did get savings um, were already um, had a lot of those um, process improvement and transformational pieces in place, and so they, able, they were able to, to capitalize on it. The folks who, um, you know, who didn't get there were still in the process of putting those things together. Um, and so I think, I, think that's the, um, I think that's the top line. Uh, the, piece that I, the blog piece that I posted uh, earlier today um, really reflects the, the, um, the comments made in the National Association of ACOs that between the 40% who said that they had uh, challenges with data and the 11% with, with quality measures, which is very much intertwined with data, you know, with 50% of the, those, those um, um, now sophomore um, MSSPs having, having problems with data, that we, you know, they really need to go back and they need to, to um, come up with a much more um, a strategic data uh, plan to move forward. That, that you know, they can, this cannot be done on spreadsheets. It cannot be done as an incremental sort of side project. Again, it's a journey, not a program. And if, it's, if you're not putting those types of levers in place, um, you're not going to get to where you need to be. Right. This is David. I'll, I'll chime in on that. I think there's one thing that, that uh, last week I chaired the uh, 2014 ACO Summit over in Austin, Texas, and one thing that jumped out at me, I asked uh, after about three or four panels that, that took place on uh, scorecards and on the pioneers and uh, some other programs, um, I asked the question, how many of you have changed a job description to implement the ACO model? And not one hand went up. And I think that was telling because some of the systemic and operational changes you're talking about um, really, it has been, like you said, it's been looked upon as a program and not a journey. And I think that was indicative of the fact that, uh, or the fact that they have not, you know, rewritten job descriptions and really made fundamental operational change uh, was one, one symptom of the fact that they really have not, uh, uh, you know, really implemented a true organizational redesign for outcome-based payment and for a lot of the other care coordination models that needs to be implemented. Yeah, this is Fred, and I'd agree with that. I think with, what this sort of shows, and it, it is early, and the results are, are mixed in a sense, is that um, given the, the way the model's set up, it's hard to get provider groups to begin saying, well, it's this population, and now I've got to step outside sort of this idea of care to how I better improve the health of a population. And so I think that's why, in particular, if you look at the report that the one to talk about the pioneers, that the savings were really shown on the outpatient side, not the inpatient, where it looks like they possibly did some some revamping of their referral networks and et cetera and the processes to create some of those savings, but didn't necessarily impact the, the health of the organ of the of the population to reduce the hospitalizations where you would expect to see some pretty substantial results. And obviously the model may not be incentivized enough for a provider group to go do that and, and see that reduction in, in payments for hospital care. Right. Isn't it that I saw the statistic that I think 45% of the majority of the, the, the ACOs, the pioneers, are earned 45% or more of their revenue 
I'm sorry, 55% or more of the revenue was earned on outpatient. It was still a fee for service. So from a payment model, you know, even the, even the pioneer ACOs were receiving, receiving most of their revenue from fee for service traditional uh, care delivery. Um, so, you know, the incentives might be in place, but really the, the, the payment models haven't changed. So, guys, let, let me chime in with something. I'm, I'm looking at the CMS, the CMMI map, and, and I see um, we might want to back off a little bit just to find, you know, what's an MSSP versus Pioneer. And then uh, if you look at the map and you see the dispersion of the Pioneer class, i.e., the more risk-savvy, shall we say, participants in this experiment, it's really clustered on the West Coast, the Rust Belt, and the Upper Northeast Corridor. The entire southern end of the country is a complete zero. Now, I'm pretty sure uh, I'm the only one on the West Coast. What's going on down south, guys? Well, I think it depends how far south you want to go. I mean, when you get down into, you know, very far the southern parts of Florida, as you've seen in some of these, uh, the Dartmouth studies and others, the utilization rates are unbelievable down there, and there are some real issues around around service delivery. So I know there, you know, there are a number of ACOs forming throughout the state, um, but I think there's probably been less skill set. Obviously, the West Coast has been an area where there's been quite a bit of of uh, global cap and, and other capitation management approaches tried out there and probably more toward the northeast and there's been less of that down here in the south. So stepping into those kinds of models is a little more risky for these groups, I would believe. Right. I mean, for me, I, I'm based in New Orleans. I work in Chicago as well, so I see a little bit of, of Midwest as also. But uh, in the deep south, um, you know, one thing I think part of that is politics. I think a lot of the, the red state dynamic is, is at play there too where, you know, the ACO model was looked upon as part of Obamacare and, there might have been some political resistance or, or uh, you know, uh, different sentiment around that. Um, that could have been one of the issues that drove it. The other thing is that you have much more fragmentation in this market. Here too, in the, in the West as well, but um, you know, in the deep South, you have sort of a stranglehold on uh, on the old way of doing business. I know when we deal with a lot of players, they, they you know, the issue of, of uh, individual tax ID even comes up quite a bit with um, with freestanding entities and, and the entrepreneurial physician who wants to stay independent. So uh, you don't, you know, even with, um, like, based in New Orleans, you have Ashna Health System and a couple of others, but you don't have uh, large networks that, um, that have really driven a lot of change. Even the ACAs and some of those players that are in, in the Deep South market have, uh, have maintained a fairly fragmented system when it comes to hospital governance and other systems. Um, so even where they've dabbled, and, you know, I would say the, the furthest I've seen along those lines has been more clinically integrated networks being developed, um, you know, with three to 400 pr providers in the network, governing structure of 25 board members or so, things like that, centralized procurement in some of those models, but not moving to the financial model, strictly staying on an integrated care model, but not moving to a full ACO status. And, and, and would that be pretty much common across any model, whether it's Pioneer or MSSP? And, and who wants to take a little stab at clarifying um, one versus the other and perhaps how local geography might influence choice? Did you want to guys, okay. want you guys start with the, the 32 Pioneers if you wanted to find those? I was just going to add that, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll just add that, you know, the pioneers had, had both upside and, 
and downside risk, they were identified as, you know, as, as again, just that, pioneers, people, groups that had already had been thinking about this type of a, a thought process in some degree or another, already had some of the people process and technology stuff in place. They could really be, um, you know, the beacons um, for the rest of the, the group. And, and, and because of that, many of them were in environments, as, as was spoken to uh, earlier, um, where managed care or other risk-based um, market uh, factors were in play, and so it wasn't a completely foreign concept. And so, uh, you know, that's the one model. And then the MSFPs is really, you know, uh, only the uh, you only have upside um, share share gaining, and you know that's it, it's a good way for for entities either in those markets who don't feel as comfortable, or or entities in other places. And and, and it is unfortunate that we didn't get more uh, from the south. Uh, but I think it was well articulated uh, the reasons for that. But you know that that allowed uh, you know uh, people to dip their toe into the into the pool and and see what this was all about. Especially uh, entities who who understand that you know we are we are definitely in a process of transformation. And the sooner that you start to get working on these things, the the better off you're going to be. Um, I think what's been what we've shown, um, having run a, essentially an accountable care organization now for almost 10 years in St. Louis uh, under an MA plan, is that um, it takes two to three years for a physician to move from a fee-for-service um, hamster wheel, um, um, you know, volume-based uh, perspective to a population management perspective that's fully engaged in in um, mentoring each other and in, in ways of, of improving um, and, and being able to use uh, data, information, and knowledge to be able to, to really um, practice um, care, using that information before, at the moment of care, and, and after the moment of care. So that takes many years to, to happen. And so that's why I said at the outset that, you know, any savings was good, but I don't think what folks don't understand is they don't get on this journey now um, they're not going to be able to just pick it up next week and, and say, you know, okay, I think I'm, I got this. Let's just get this going. We'll have it done, but have it in place in six months. It is a completely different way, a work, different way um, of workflow. And, and I, I love the, the earlier question about uh, did anybody change their title? Um, I, I think you could even ask people, you know, did any, you know, is there anybody been hired? Is there any, any completely separate groups? Because a lot of times what I see is folks are just uh, time sharing from various existing groups. And there's, so there's not even a dedicated focus um, on this. And, and, and we're talking about transforming everything top to bottom in our industry around value-based, you know, from benefits all the way uh, to value-based care and, and self-care. And, and um, for it to be taken, um, you know, as a relatively incremental approach, I think is, 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 is why many of these entities are, are struggling to get out of the off of first base. Yeah, right. I, I would also... I would also point out that as as these provider groups have formed these entities, and obviously it, it's early, and yes, we have some successes, and some that are, are 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 not as successful, and they're trying to work their way through it with a with a payment model that has some incentive. But as I can tell you, with one uh, provider I know very well who does a, who's been doing full risk Medicare for a long time through his practice, Global Cap, and is very successful at it. When he went to the local ACO meeting with his hospital here in the South, as a matter of fact, and they said, hey, we're going to form one. We'd love to get you into this. You know you know this. You've been doing it for years. And he said, why would I? There's not enough margin in that shared savings for me to do it. I'd much rather go the way I am, global risk, and, and recognize that I heavily manage these and have completely transformed my practice and can and create a medical loss ratio that is significantly below my payments. And, and all of that funding becomes mine. And I think what's happened is some of these provider groups 
have moved into this space, but there are there are there are companies out there that have been doing population health management from the vendor side, either to employers or to payers, that have a much better feel for how you can bend that trend and move that move that needle, adjust the ER utilization rate and your hospital rates. And I don't know necessarily that the provider groups have reached out to those organizations who have been doing those kinds of things for years. And an example of that would be, you know, relatively recently this PepsiCo study was released, which showed that in Pepsi, you know, chronic disease management programs netted 130 plus dollars per member per month in savings. So, so, and 20, and the majority or a big chunk of that was actually hospitalization rates dropping. So I think we can, if we were to mix the two and, and provide some of that cross expertise between providers and some of these others in the space who have been doing population health management programs for year, for years, I think we could create some very sustainable and successful models. Right. You know, speaking of it, this is David again. Speaking about um, the, the the ROI on that too, when you look at the the dollars that you just mentioned per remember per month, uh, one thing that, that the conversation, I think this has even spurred some of the this conversation on Twitter last week, um, was in discussing what are the startup costs for the ACOs. And, you know, if you look at some of the ones like on the West Coast, Monarch and San Diego or some others um, that, that evolved out of the IPA model, the Independent Physician Association model, where they already had governance, they already had some sort of coordinated model in place from a, from a management standpoint, um, and those that have moved forward, and then some of the others uh, in on the East Coast that that have done some uh, similar things, it's ranged from a low end of a million dollars to a high. Now, the million dollars was also homegrown IT, so you could probably double that if you had to buy IT off the shelf. Um, but let's say you know a million to two million on the low end, up to about seven million on the high end. And I would say that that's also what I've heard has been similar for the CIN, the Clinical Integrated Network, is a startup cost as well. However, you know, when you put that metric across uh, cost-benefit or ROI analysis with other types of healthcare investment, that is minuscule. That's minimal. So I think one of the, the, the arguments about, you know, how can we get that $4 million average down to $2 million and all these things, if you have $136 per member per month payback on, on a wellness and care management program, and then you look at some of the other return on, returns on investment that can be realized from, from delivering on an ACO model, in healthcare facilities that are several hundred million dollars on average at least, um, the ROI is exponential to what's being invested right at present. So it tells me that, you know, in one sense, I think there's probably a, a disbelief that, or maybe a lack of understanding as to what the ROI metric is going to be and what's, what's that, um, you know, if you're going to do a traditional discounted cash flow internal rate of return analysis on your, on your, your, your return on, on long term, um, it seems to be that that's sort of a black hole right now, and that's probably what's driving the front-end cost. Because if, if you really realize that the true, what we believe, I know all three of us and, and Greg and others believe, would be the, the exponential return that, that can be realized from a true coordinated care ACO model, you know, $20 million investment startup costs would be relatively insignificant to get one of these programs off the, off the ground. I mean, hell, most of these hospitals we're talking to spend a million or $2 million on the Da Vinci Surgical Instrument alone and that's, that, that's only impacting surgery. Um, so $4 million average startup cost, to me, is insignificant. So it shows that, that people aren't really understanding or buying into the ROI analysis. I would say, yeah, I'd add, add that they're not actually buying into what it really means to transform their, their processes um, to the extent that need to happen. I think there's a, a bit of a naivety there that, that 
that it's it's way more complicated than they're they're thinking or seeing. And the ones that have been very successful at it, um, you know, Montfiore was was pointed out in the first in the in the pioneers. And it, it, you know, they've been doing care management forever, and and they've been very good at it. And so, so you know, they're not. They, you, if you went back to them, they're not going to tell you they spend one or two million dollars a year on this stuff. They're spending tens of millions of dollars. So, so I think right. it's an underinvestment. But I think that comes from an underappreciation for really what this is. Again, not it's a it's, it's a transformational journey, not a, not a program. And, and if you treat it as a as a even a three year program, and I I wanted to make that point that. That this really is the beginning. MSSP really is just your starter journey. Um, it's not where you need to end. You need to end, um, as, as it was said earlier, in the full risk side. That's where the physicians get engaged. Um, the, the majority of the hundreds of physicians I was speaking of earlier in, in St. Louis that we have, the vast majority of those are under the full under a full risk contract with MA, and you know they're able to. Some of those entities are able to get get close to the 30% that IOM says is you know waste and, 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 and inappropriate care, et cetera. Um, and, you know, so that bo- the bonuses they get off of that are substantial. And so I, I, I do think we need to facilitate the, the country towards uh, a greater degree of care, and, and, and more case studies need to be written up around the success, especially at the physician level, what that means. I agree. So, so let me um, back up to one of the points I think um, – David was making um, the A is uh, is an AC, is uh, ACO the ACO chassis a la clinically integrated network. If we should assume that that must be the common infrastructure, uh, is it really um, HMO light and in particular HMO light vis-a-vis Medicare Advantage is really the way to go? And if I'm a primary care physician. Is, is do I have a choice of you know whether I participate in an ACO or I cast my lot with the Medicare Advantage uh, uh, contractor? Any thoughts? Greg, it depends on some, some Medicare Advantage plans aren't set up in an accountable care type of structure. They're set up really as a, more of a traditional managed care. So if they're set up in, in what we call a collaborative payer. And they're very transparent about the information, and they put tools and processes in place to basically make sure that the contract is a win-win. Because you know, if, if the p- provider doesn't win in these contracts, they're not going to renew. So, so it isn't an us and them. It's a, it's a we both got to make this work kind of thing. Then you know, I would I would tell you that that, that these physicians, um, you know, you know, over this 10-year period, they have a their panel is is, is percentage-wise small with the MA. But they they would they love doing medicine in that arena because they feel like that they can they can make they can practice medicine the way they they think it should have always been practiced. They can take longer during the encounters, and they can they can make um, more money for higher quality and and, and and lower cost decisions. And it's and you know and so they're seeing it. And so you know they have turned down other ACO like contracts because it's too it's not it's not worth their time. Right. I, I would say yeah. that as a, as a provider group looking at this today, you, you would say to yourself, do, do I have the expertise or can I get internally the expertise to, pr- to truly manage this population, you know, across all the facets of having the data, the care coordination, care management, you know, analytic tools, risk, risk identification tools, et cetera. Uh, and if not, then who do I partner with as a, as a health plan or 
to to take that top level risk and maybe push it down to me, but provide me with those tools I can't get, so I don't end up like the PHOs back in the late 90s that suddenly took risk and two or three years later found out that they were completely upside down, and uh, and right. and had to blow themselves up. Yeah, I would agree. So, uh, go ahead. I was I was going to mention this about looking at the at the variety groups also. One thing that's interesting is when you look at the 20, 2013 class and and now the twenty fourteen class of, of ACOs on the broader the broader mix of ACOs, um, it's interesting to see the, the rising number of physician led ACOs that are coming about. And I think a couple of years ago, you know, the perception was you're going to have the health systems that are already in place move into this model. Then you'll have the hospitals who are scooping up all the PCP practices. They're going to absorb the the specialists in the primary care groups and, and buy them out or, or take over the front desk essentially through a management contract and all that is integrated with an EMR and that's going to be the foundation for the, some of these regional ACOs and it seems that the opposite is it, that's not what's been happening. You've been seeing more of a drive to an ACO model where the physicians can lead it. Um, I've talked to several different groups and, and it's been, there's a lot of different motivations. I really haven't seen a pattern. Maybe maybe the, the other guests would have, maybe Jim or Fred would have something, but um, it's been interesting just to see the number of, of physician-led ACOs that are coming about and, and, and have aligned also with, um, with getting support from some of the payer groups also, you know, Blue Cross and their Community Blue, Quality Blue program, and some of the others, and also supporting them with, with, uh, with some of the data tools and things like that um, coming about, not payer-led, but physician-led with payer support. So it's been interesting to see uh, that take place. I just wanted to throw that in. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I would just add that I, that I think that that's a, a, a very good trend because at the end of the day, the savings really will ultimately come, if done correctly, from a reduction in hospital costs. And, um, and that may be more politically difficult to do in a, in a, in a hospital-led organization until it, until it moves completely to a full-risk model where the, where the hospital can benefit from that. Yeah. We have that we have that opportunity we have that opportunity of the ten groups that we have in the MA plan. Two of them are, are hospital owned physician groups that joined you know relatively uh, you know in the last few years, and and they they're able to share the shape savings that come in get shared um, in part to back to the hospital and in part to the physicians under there. So it's it it's, it is sort of a win win, and they realize that hey this is this is better than nothing. Um, they saw the market change and the pressure for them to get involved, and 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 I got to tell you, they're they're approaching some of the same cost and quality metrics that the that the primary care only physician IPA and and other groups are are doing. And so um, I think there is a model that works, but it 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 it, it is um, it, it 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 is one of those last resorts. Um, you know, I, I have to kind of be pushed into it because that's where the market is going. And at least that's right. what we that's what we've been seeing. Yeah, I agree. So, so one bit of uh, data data point here um, in light of your comment, David, about the the changing uh, mix of, of participants and and the class, perhaps more reflective of physician directed. Uh, health in, uh, Health Intelligence Network published a study, a survey last year, and the number one trend they've identified for 2014 was that PHOs will dominate. ACO leadership by physician hospital organizations nearly doubled in the last 12 months, PHOs will likely continue to hold the ACO reins. 44% of developing ACOs will be 
rooted in a PHO structure. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I've always felt, uh, you know, you can't generalize. There's no cookie cutter here, but, gen- uh, but uh, you know, if, if uh, I tended to think that the predominant reasonable bias is that institutionally-led, i.e. hospital-led ACOs are probably not what the market's calling for, and that the first couple of years we might see sort of thrashing in and out of the, uh, the program to see who actually has the best uh, organizational structure and delivery configuration. But at any rate, that's, that's what's up in their survey. Gentlemen, we're coming up on the, the bottom of the hour. So um, uh, basically the question is, you know, early results, good news, bad news, and let's just uh, take a whip. Uh, David, you want to start? Sure. I think we're dealing with, uh, you know, to, to use Bill Jumper, Joseph Sumpet, the phrase, creative destruction. And um, with any type of disruptive innovation, it's going to be somewhat messy, and it's not going to be a clean win on the, the first go-around. But, um, you know, it's experimentation along with, uh, with innovation. So I think all in all, nine dropouts, uh, moving to the share savings from the other model, um, I think it, it was a success on the pioneers, and I think the, the 2012 and 2013 class looks strong as well. So... I'm still optimistic about the ACO model. Fred? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's early, but, you know, we have a few split look like successes out there. I think it, once we get a little more deep, deeply into the numbers and look at the outgoing years, we'll have a better sense of where it's going to go, but it certainly is a process. It's going to take some time. And, Jim, your final thoughts? Um, you know, it, it, it definitely, as I said earlier, it, it definitely is a journey, and I, and I think the journey is just, is that we need to get to an ultimate place. And I don't know if the ACO structure as we see today is, is where we're going to ultimately land. I think there's elements of it. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to have both accountable um, providers and accountable patients working together um, and not either ignored or, or juxtaposed against each other. And so I think we're going to see some We're in a quote overtime segment. I'm sorry that we get cut off on the live, but we we can actually, Jim, you can actually finish your thoughts, and we might uh, have a a minute or two to sort of wind it down in a more orderly fashion. I I just wanted to say that I think going forward, it's just it's going the the the, the ACO 3.0 is going to be include the patient as as long as the provider, as long as the patient's not a member of the care team, and it's. And the family members, and are not. We are not going to get to where we need, and, and and we're only just barely starting that because there's so much other infrastructure and other things that need to be put in place. But I think that's the future. Oh wow! Yeah. And I mean, I that, that's worth a separate program. I and mean, patient engagement, how to in, oh, how to embed that? Yeah, yeah. How to embed it's it? It's an accountable health system, system. And, and that's <laughs> where we need to get to. Yeah. So uh, uh, earlier today, I spoke with Regina Holiday on the whole subject of the state of patient engagement, and she was uh, making uh, note that um, between ERA High Tech and the ACA, including um, the organizational structure of uh, members on the board and, 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 in, and the so-called uh, indicia of patient engagement, that uh, collectively we're making progress towards taking uh, – introducing this patient-centric culture into a very top-down provider-centric um, 
way of doing things. So we're scratching the surface. could be a separate program to incorporate that whole patient engagement angle. So if anyone has yeah. some uh, final thoughts, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Any, any Greg, last I thoughts? One, I mentioned one thing about uh, just that. If you could, I think it would warrant a, another topic discussion about it because I was on a, a conference this morning with um, Health Affairs. Uh, they had a connected, connected care symposium out of D.C., and it was interesting. There was one guy from Kaiser who mentioned that he thinks that the, the public exchanges but also the number of employers moving to private exchanges is going to be this, this beginning, this catalyst of changing the patient into a consumer mindset. And that that engagement, that the idea of moving to, the, you know, on the, on the insurance side at least, getting, uh, having to shop for your care directly, um, even with, the, with some of the employers who have moved to the, to the exchanges, that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, over time we'll sort of cultivate this consumer-focused patient model. And, um, and, and it speaks exactly what Fred and Jim just said, that, you know, without the patient engaged in this, uh, risk assumption can't just be on the entity. It can't just be on the provider side. So uh, who knows, maybe that's, that's another further discussion to talk about how some of this, these other macro changes that are taking place might drive to more, uh, more of a patient-centric and, and patient-responsible type system. I'm game. Sounds great to me. Okay, guys. Well, I want to cue the music here. I want to thank my guests today, David Crace, Fred Goldstein, Jim Hansen, for their time. You've been listening to This Week in Accountable Care, the first program for 2014, and we will do this as often as it makes sense. And I just heard the suggestion for a follow-up program, and uh, we'll post those uh, to the blog shortly. Thanks again, guys. Greg Masters signing off of This Week in Accountable Care. Bye now.